Well, have you ever experienced some major letdowns in life? And I bet you have. I think we all have. At some point, our experiences always fall way short of our expectations. This can happen with trivial things, like when you read a really good book, and here it gets turned into a movie, and you're very excited to see it come to life, and you go and watch it, and you experience letdown. Or when you go to a restaurant, you taste this amazing dish, and you, you take it home, you try and make it yourself, and what do you find? Let down. Some letdowns can be more significant. A lot of young people get married expecting to find perfect bliss and harmony, but then they start living with another sinner 24-7, and they inevitably find some letdown. The same goes with kids. Maybe you have kids, you expect little angels, and you get little sinners and some letdown. Of course, let's not even get started with political letdown. We've all had our hopes and dreams up with that new candidate who we think can really make a difference, really change the system, and then one, two, three years later, letdown. Some letdowns are truly supreme. One of the greatest letdowns in the Bible, I think, would have to belong to Moses. You remember the scene, the time when God himself descended on Mount Sinai. His glory dwelt there in the cloud. The people of Israel were down below, trembling in fear, God called Moses up the mountain, though. And there up on the mountain, Moses beheld a a form of God's glory. And they spoke face to face, so to speak. And Moses fellowshiped with God. It was such a glorious encounter that afterward, Moses' face shone like the sun. He was radiating this light off. But this experience could not last forever. Moses couldn't stay there on the mountain with the Lord. He had to go back down to the people to give them the law. So down he went. And I'm sure as he was descending the mountain, he was on cloud nine, just elated over this experience he just had. But as he got closer and closer to the people, he started to hear something. He heard this noise in the distance. sounded like like a party, like a festival was going on. He wondered what it was. And as he got closer, he learned, as God told him, what was going on. While he was gone, those 40 days, the people under the leadership of Aaron, who's the number two guy, They took all their gold, they threw it together, and they formed it into a golden calf. And they started dancing around it and bowing down to it and worshiping it, claiming that this calf was their God who just delivered them out of Egypt. And it just just makes you think, like, are you kidding me? After everything God did for you, they're that quickly resorting to this rank pagan idolatry. And the point is, for Moses, I mean, talk about a letdown. He went from bliss and the, and the heights of glory with God down back to the wretchedness of fallen man. Just a letdown. In the passage we have this morning, we encounter a very similar event, a very similar letdown. There's no golden calf that's involved, but there is a, a monumental letdown. It's found in Mark chapter 9 as we continue our way through the Gospel of Mark. So if you haven't already, open there now to Mark chapter 9. Right before this, we had another very similar event to what Moses experienced. Jesus takes his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, up this very high mountain, and he is transfigured before them. His face starts to shine like the sun. His clothes are glowing like a light bulb. His divine glory was on display. Then Moses shows up, Elijah shows up, the greatest figures from the Old Testament, and they're conversing with Jesus about the cross. Finally, God himself shows up the same cloud of glory that enveloped Moses on the mountain now surrounds them and the disciples. 
And God spoke to them saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And talk about amazing experience. This was their glimpse of heaven. And they wanted to stay. You may remember Peter, he even asked Jesus if he could build three shelters for them. And the intent behind that was to make their stay permanent. He wanted to stay up there on the mountain with Jesus and God and the glory and the kingdom. He wanted to stay, but it was not meant to be. It wasn't time for that glory to come yet. And the transfiguration ended. Moses and Elijah disappeared. Christ's glory was reveiled. And the disciples were snapped back to reality, just like that, back to a fallen world. And they all had to go back down the mountain. Just like Moses, they had to travel back down the mountain to the rest of the people. And for a little while, they too were on cloud nine as they descended the mountain. But as they get close and they resume their meeting with the other nine disciples, this is where we encounter another monumental letdown. And it must have been the worst for Jesus Because when he descends and they meet up with the other nine disciples, what does he find? He finds total chaos. It's a scene of total chaos. Our passage for today, you've probably heard this before, but you've got the nine disciples and they're left behind and they're embroiled in this argument with some scribes. A crowd is watching them go at it and they're just, they're fighting and it's all revolving around this failure. The disciples had failed to cast a demon out of this little boy who is suffering so much. The father standing by, he's desperate. The crowd, they're amused. The scribes, they're mocking. The disciples, they're both trying to defend themselves, but also figure out, like, why couldn't we cast this demon out? Like I said, in short, it's a scene of total chaos. And for Jesus, the letdown had to be real. He went from being in his glorified state back in the presence of the Father in his glory, now down to this, back to the muck and the mire of fallen humanity, division, disunity, depravity, disbelief. Even his own disciples, they were clueless, they were faithless. It was a disappointment. The letdown was real. And I wonder if Jesus was just a little tempted to leave them Go back up the mountain and then just ascend back to the Father. Just to leave. Go back to heaven and forget it all. But we know, of course, that Jesus stayed. He knew what he was getting into when he came to earth in the first place. This was part of his humiliation in the incarnation where he he veiled his glory. He took on the form of man. He lived in our fallen world and he even suffered by our hands. And he did this for us. He was doing this to draw us to his glory. And so what we find in this passage in Mark chapter 9, and we see Jesus exasperated and frustrated by the fallenness of our world and the letdown, especially when compared to God's glory. But at the same time, he knows this is why he came, to fix our brokenness and our world. And so he ends up transforming this whole situation from a letdown to an uplift, you could say. He, He uses this time to teach them one of the greatest lessons on faith, in all the Bible. This is a very classic passage in the Gospels, especially since it takes place right after the transfiguration. It's like one of the highest moments, and then we get one of the lowest moments. And from this, though, we learn a lot. Today we want to just relive this story ourselves firsthand. We want to experience that letdown. 
But we also want to see how Jesus transforms this and uses this to weave a really an essential lesson on faith from the Bible. It's a long passage, verses 14 through 29. And so we're going to read it as we go. We're going to let it unfold before us. No special outline, nothing fancy. We're just going to read this passage along and explain it. And we'll save some time to reflect at the end. So with that being said, we're just going to get started in Mark chapter 9. And we're going to start at verse 14. Read along with me. And we'll see what this is all about. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 14. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them. And some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. Right off the bat, we're introduced to these three common character groups that are featured in so many of these gospel stories. We've got the disciples, the scribes, the crowd. The disciples, there's only nine of them, or nine main ones, because Peter, James, and John were with Jesus coming down the mountain. So you've got the nine disciples, and they're arguing with some scribes. And we've seen these guys before. These are the religious leaders, the professionals of the Jewish law, the guardians and interpreters of the law. And they're arguing, they're fighting. Meanwhile, the crowd is watching. Just a bunch of nameless faces. And the crowd, they're always eager to watch, but they're very slow to follow. And it's like, it's like a couple of boys in a schoolyard fight. They're going at it, the disciples, the scribes, and everyone circles around and watches. It's kind of the scene that's going on here. But everyone is so focused on the action that they don't realize Jesus has just walked up. That's, that's the nuance in the text. It implies that Jesus walks up to the crowd, and at first, he's unnoticed. It's like he's at the back of the crowd looking in. But then someone realizes, hey, Jesus is here. And so everyone runs up to him, they greet him, they talk to him. It's almost like he's the school teacher who's come, and he's going to break up the fight. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you. It happened to me when I was a little kid. You know, you're a little kid and you're, you're in school and you're doing something wrong and you know it's wrong. And you don't realize it though, the teacher is standing right behind you. And they're watching you. You don't know, you're just doing your little thing, whatever it is that's wrong and they're watching you. And you feel, feel something behind you, so you turn and you see the teacher and there's that instant, that split second, you get that wave of panic and fear and terror because you know you're busted. That's the impression I get here, at least, that they're going at it, and then here's Jesus. And they're like, uh, uh-oh. In verse 16, Jesus asks him a question. He says, what are you discussing with them? It's actually very hard to tell exactly to whom Jesus asks this question. It could be the disciples, or the scribes, or the crowd. In fact, it seems likely that it's the crowd, because they're the ones who run up to him first, and it's one from the crowd who who ends up answering the question. Either way, though, the disciples, they don't say anything. They're probably ashamed of their behavior, that they got caught up in this argument. They know they're going to get scolded. But if the scribes aren't going to say anything, they've tried to verbally spar with Jesus on many occasions, and it never ends well for them. They are always made to look like fools. So the disciples, they're not saying anything. The scribes aren't saying anything. But one person does answer. One person from the crowd answers Jesus, verse 17. And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, 
I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And here we learn the nature of this confrontation, what this is all about. This man, his father, he's brought his son to Jesus for some deliverance. His son had been demon-possessed, and he was greatly afflicted. The father had obviously heard that Jesus was known for doing such a thing, for helping people who were so afflicted. And he learned that Jesus was nearby. It's very rare for Jesus to come this far north, Caesarea Philippi. So here's Jesus is in the neighborhood, and he rushes at the opportunity to go and see Jesus and maybe get his son some help. But he finds the disciples only to learn Jesus isn't there. He's gone. He's gone on some hike up Mount Hermon with three disciples. So he's like, okay, great. But he turns to the other nine. He's like, hey, you guys, you guys are with Jesus. You, you help my son. And this is a very legitimate request because the disciples were known to do this. Back in Mark chapter 6, Jesus deputized the disciples. He delegated to them some of his divine authority over demons. He enabled them to cast demons out, to deliver people, and they were successful. They went out, they teached, they, they taught, they preached, they healed people, they cast out demons, and word spread. So this father probably also heard that the disciples could cast out demons. So he goes to them for help. You guys help my son. And they agreed. They likely said, nope, no problem. We've done this before. Just you know, bring him to us. Maybe one of the nine steps up to the plate. Maybe it's Andrew. He would have been the top-ranking disciple in the absence of Peter, James, and John. It's like, can you bring me the boy? And he says the words, you know, in the name of Jesus, I command the Spirit to come out. But nothing happens. Maybe another one of the nine steps up. You know, just, just step aside. Let me, let me take this. And he, he tries himself, but nothing happens. Maybe they go one by one down the list, each of the nine trying, like, step aside, guys. Let me show you how it's really done. And they're all trying to cast this demon out, but something's wrong. It's, it's not working. They're all met with failure. And soon they start arguing among themselves, like, what's, what's wrong with you? And what's wrong with you? And then soon after that, a crowd starts to form, people watching this. And then, like, sharks smelling blood in the water. Some scribes start to circle around. And they're loving this. They're loving watching the disciples fail. Because they hate Jesus. And they hate the disciples. So they're excited at their failure. And surely they start mocking. Look, this is all the proof that the disciples are phonies. They don't really know or follow God. Look, they, they can't even cast this demon out of this boy. And you, really, you want to follow them. and You want to follow Jesus. Surely the ridicule and mockery was flying from the scribes. Of course, it's not like any of the scribes stepped up to the plate to cast the demon out. They were comfortable from the sidelines, but nonetheless, they were definitely hurling abuses at the floundering disciples and their master, Jesus. And meanwhile, the father was exasperated, and the boy was just suffering. You hear about his condition here, and it's really sad. It's one of the saddest cases in all of Scripture of affliction. He was demon-possessed, and as a result, he was mute, which, of course, couldn't speak. 
We learn later that likely he couldn't hear as well. And if that's not bad enough, he had these seizures where this demon took hold of him and, and slammed him to the ground. His body stiffened up. He clenched his teeth. He was foaming at the mouth, just out of control. Now, I want to say this by, by way of a quick side note. It's a long passage. We don't have the time to talk about demons in the Bible. If you're curious about this, though, I want to reference you to a three-part sermon series I preached on demons from the Bible. It's a couple of months ago, back in April. You can find it all on our website, and you can get all your questions answered there. I'll point you to that. For now, I just want to say this with our limited time to reiterate that Scripture makes it very clear that not all sickness is attributed to demons. It's not. Jesus encountered many people who were sick, and they were just sick. They didn't have a demon. They were just sick. So he healed them. There were other people, though, who had some sort of affliction, and it was attributed to demon possession. And so for these people, Jesus delivered them. There was a difference between the sick and the possessed, and seemingly everyone knew how to tell the difference. People did not have a hard time telling the difference between, oh, you're sick or you're possessed. It makes us wonder, though, like how, how do they know? What's the difference? I talked about this in greater length in the sermon series, but in short, the answer is the mind. The demon possessed always displayed the distinct presence of another personality controlling them or afflicting them. And we'll leave it at that for now. But this father, he understood this weren't just normal seizures. That there was another personality, a presence in his son, afflicting him and seeking to harm him. He was violently cast to the ground as if being slammed down by some invisible force. And can you just imagine the effects of this over time? What if someone just body slammed you to the hard pavement? Multiple times a day. I mean, it would hurt. But what if, you hit, what if you hit your head? How many times did this boy hit his head? How many concussions did he receive from these seizures? And, and was he disfigured? You can imagine him being slammed down, breaking a bone. It's never going to set and heal properly. So was he disfigured as well? Not only could he not speak and likely not hear, but he must have been mentally impaired to some degree because of all these repeated slammings to the ground. It's just so sad. He was mute, so he couldn't communicate his fears to his father. And he was deaf, so he couldn't hear his father's words of comfort. He just lived in this very scary, dark, isolated world, always wondering when the next attack is going to come, when he's going to lose control and be slammed to the ground again. Just a terrible existence. And so it's no wonder that this father comes to Jesus begging on his knees, we learn that from Matthew in his account. But before Jesus responds to the Father and deals with the Father, he's got something else to say. Verse 19. First he says this. He exclaims. Jesus answered them and said, O oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. This is what it looks like for Jesus to be exasperated. It's because this is such a letdown. He just went from the glories of the mountain and his glory, the Father's there, and he comes back down to this. Just, just a fallen world. This is a stark reminder for Jesus that he's still living in a fallen world surrounded by sin and suffering 
and Satan and the effects. And everyone around him falls short. Jesus proclaims the unbelief of the entire generation, which is very appropriate. You've got the crowd, and these are the masses of people, and they're very comfortable sitting on the sidelines. They, they want to watch, but they don't really want to follow. They've made their unbelief very clear. You've got the scribes, and forget about unfaithful. They're just outright opponents. They don't know the Lord. They're the, these are the self-righteous religious people, but they, they don't know the Lord, and they hate Jesus and his way. They're sealed in their doom and unbelief. And then you've even got the disciples who, although they're followers, they're still so weak and helpless. They have unbelief mixed in with their faith and they're riddled by failure. The nine, they should have been able to cast this demon out. They should have. Jesus gave them his authority. But they suffered from weak, little faith. And so Jesus, he's just disappointed. He's let down. So he proclaims, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? It's not like he wants to get rid of the disciples. He's just exclaiming rhetorically, look, there's so little time left for them to get it. And will they ever get it? These disciples, they're the ones who are going to be in charge. They're going to be leading the church when he's gone. And there's so much for them to get, but they're not. And there's so little time left. Are you you ever going to get it? Time's running out. For now, though, it's time for Jesus to step in and to do something. So he says, bring the boy to me. In verse 20, they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Now, you know what's going on here. The demon knows what's going on here. He knows his time is up. We've witnessed this several times in the Gospels. Demons who themselves are merely fallen angels, whenever they encounter Jesus, they know what's going to happen. They know what he represents. Jesus represents judgment before the time for them. And so in Mark, we often see these demons, they assault their victims one last time before Jesus casts them out. And that's what's happening here. But again, it's such a sad sight to picture this, this little boy rolling around in the dirt, foaming at the mouth, his body stiffened up. Everyone's watching. Everyone's watching this. But everyone is powerless to do anything. They can't help him. He's just rolling around. But Jesus is not powerless. And Jesus is not compassionless. Verse 21, and he asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? Jesus is not trying to find out his patient's medical history here. He's not asking because this is going to help him in his treatment or diagnosis. He's asking this question to show compassion. Jesus, he's not a mysterious force. He's a person. He's a person who cares about other people. He has compassion on this boy and his father, and he wants them to know it, that he does care. And in addition, Jesus is asking to draw out the father's faith. Just by looking at the boy, you could tell this has been going on for a long time. He's battered, bruised, maybe disfigured, scarred. You know this has been going on for a long time. 
In fact, the father says later, it's been going on from childhood. So Jesus knows it's been going on for a long time. But he's asking, because by asking, by the question, the father is forced to recognize and confess his hopelessness and helplessness. There's, there's, it's been happening from childhood. And what can I do? I, I can't do anything. There's no treatment. There's no cure. There's no hope. There's no help. He's confessing he's out of options, which is a requirement for faith, by the way. Jesus is drawing what will become faith out of this father. But before we get to that, we learn it's even a little bit worse for the boy. Verse 22, the father continues, he says, It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Here we learn that the demon was essentially trying to kill the boy. Open fires were everywhere. That's how they cooked all their food. Water was everywhere. Several rivers were in the region of Caesarea Philippi. So given the opportunity, this demon would initiate a seizure for the boy, slam him to the ground like normal, except this time direct him toward the fire, toward the water. And why? Well, why else? It's to, to kill him. And now we get the full picture of this young boy's misery. His brain was battered from these multiple concussions. He was likely disfigured from broken bones that never set. He had to have burn scars all over his hands, his chest, maybe his face. He can't speak. He can't hear. People think he's just a lunatic and just they, they write him off. It's, like I said, really is one of the, the saddest, most pitiful instances of suffering in Scripture. And then just put yourself also in the father's shoes. Can you imagine having a child like this? I mean, who knows what's ever going to happen? For the father, it's a constant watch, constant concern, constant worry, constant grief, constant helplessness, constant hopelessness. He really is out of options. No one can help his son. Not even the disciples. He brought the kid to the disciples. They failed. Even they couldn't help his son. Now he's really out of options. In fact, because the disciples failed, he's starting to doubt if Jesus can even help him. He initially brought his boy to Jesus. Jesus wasn't there. So he turned to the disciples. They failed. And now he's not so sure now that Jesus is here, they can do anything about it. And so look at what he says at the end of verse 22. He says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can help, that'd be nice. But he's not so sure anymore. His belief in the power of Jesus, which he heard about, it's been shaken by the failure of the disciples. But Jesus corrects him, verse 23. Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. It's a a classic response and passage in the Bible. The first Jesus responds, If you can, he's not outraged, but he's like, You don't really know who I am. If you can, of course I can. I'm the Lord. But this father is is shaken. Jesus is not mad. He's just showing, look, the problem is not my willingness. I have compassion for the boy, the father. The problem is not his power. 
He can. He has full authority over angels and demons. He, he can do this. The, the problem is the Father's faith. The issue is the Father's faith. Now, I want to be very clear. Jesus did not always require faith from people in order to heal them. There's many times when he healed or delivered people and they had no faith at all. Like the Gerasene demoniac. The guy had no faith. Jesus still delivered him. But as we'll see later, Jesus, he's using this whole incident to teach the disciples and us one of the most essential lessons on faith in the Bible. And so to set this up, he is drawing faith out of the Father. And that's what he's continuing to do. He says, all things are possible to him who believes. We can't spend a ton of time on this verse. I just hope you realize, though, that this little verse is not the blank check promise that some people make it out to be. This has to be one of the most abused verses in the Bible. It's often ripped from its context, used to claim that you can have all your wishes come true if you just believe. If you have enough faith, you can get anything you want. You can essentially control God. And if you don't get what you're after, health or wealth or prosperity, it's your fault. You don't have enough faith. You may have heard this before. It's one of the greatest lies out there today. Look, in short, it's true. All things are possible for him who believes. That's because God is all-powerful. He can do anything. He can heal anyone or save anyone. All things are possible for him. However, don't forget what Jesus said. He said, if you want to follow me, you must first deny self. You deny yourself. It's not about your will anymore. You don't pray, my will be done. You pray, Lord, your will be done. It's not about my will anymore. It's about your will. But people, they want to use this verse as a way of getting their will done. Lord, I want this, and I believe in it, so give it to me. It's mine, because I believe. It's, it's their will being done. But no, faith and prayer should be directed at God's will being done. All things are possible, absolutely. But faith submits to God's will and never goes past his promises. 1 John 5, verse 14. John says, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I'll give you an example. We've all had a sick loved one in our life. Everyone. We've all had someone we care about, they get sick one way or another. And what's our will? Well, obviously, our will is for them to be healed every time, of course. But that may or may not be God's will. We don't know. God has made no promises about our relative in his word. We don't know. So what do you do? Well, you you pray your heart's desire. All things are possible. Pray that God would heal them, restore them. But you pray his will be done. His will be done. Look, don't limit God's power. No one is beyond his reach. He can heal anyone. He can save anyone physically, spiritually. All things are possible. But it's his will. His will be done, not your own. And you call and trust on him for that. To this, the father, though, he gives gives the perfect response. He couldn't have thought of of a better response to what Jesus said. 
And it's fitting for all of us. And now the Father leaves behind for us another one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture. Here's this guy, this Father. He's standing in front of Jesus, who is the author of faith. Right? Hebrews, he's the author of faith. And he basically asks him for some help in that department. Verse 24. Jesus said, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Like I said, he may be the most honest man in Scripture. He's desperate. He's needy. He recognizes that his only hope is in Jesus. And he does believe. He believes Jesus can help him. But not perfectly. Not, not totally. His belief has been shaken by the failure of the disciples. So there's, there's some doubt mixed in with his belief. There's some unbelief there. He's not totally sure that Jesus can do this, but he believes he's committing. He's going to trust. He's not totally sure how it's going to work. He trusts imperfectly and asks for more help to believe more. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's the best thing. This is exactly what the Lord is looking for. Even though it's hard, even though you have some doubts, you still believe. You still commit. Do you think the Lord is looking for a perfect faith? Well, yeah, I mean, of course He is in a sense, but He knows that's not possible for us. There's no such thing. God will never find a perfect faith. Faith, every Christian on this side of eternity has, to some degree, an imperfect faith. Some people, they're just barely hanging on because of life's difficulties. Others, they believe, but they're, they're battling some intellectual doubt. They still believe, but they're battling. Some people, they're growing, but they've got their ups and downs, especially when they're attacked by the enemy. And some people, you might call them strong in the faith, but they still have their moments of weakness. In fact, every time you sin, you are displaying an imperfect faith. You are essentially acting as if God is not real. That's what sin is. It's it's called a practical atheism, you could say. It's an imperfect faith, and we all have one. But one sure sign that your imperfect faith is, though real and true, is recognizing your own weakness and your own insufficiency. Yet you still cry to the Lord for more help. And God promises to never turn away that cry. And he will never not answer someone like this father. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We'll come back to that. Let's keep going though. Verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And briefly, Jesus, he's near the end of his ministry, as we know. And at this point, he's done with the crowds. He's had enough of the crowds. He knows they're unbelieving. They just want a spectacle. They love watching stuff like this, but they don't really want to follow. So as the crowd starts to build, he's, he, he doesn't want to be their performer. So he's, it's time to get this over with. So he commands the demon to come out, to never return. He makes short work of the demon. And the demon has no choice but to listen because Jesus is the Lord. And he's gone forever. 
verse 26, after crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsion, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up and he got up. At first, everyone probably thought this whole procedure took a turn for the worse. The father probably got quite sad and shocked. He's like, Jesus, yeah, you got rid of the demon all right, but you killed my son. That's like saying the operation was a success, but the patient died. Like, who wants that? But this boy was not dead. He was delivered, and Jesus proved it by hoisting him up, pulling him to his feet, turning him over to the father. This wasn't a resurrection. He wasn't dead. But I do believe Mark deliberately uses resurrection language because this whole scene really prefigures what Jesus does for all of us. In a spiritual sense, you could say we're all like the boy, lost, depraved, helpless, in control of another, afflicted. But Jesus delivers us and raises us to new life. And that's certainly what he did for this boy. He was free and healed and restored to his father. The text doesn't explicitly say this, but I'm certain that this boy was, that he could hear again, that he could speak again, that his wounds were healed, his mind was restored. He was handed back over to his father, restored, not just free of a demon, but back to normal. Luke chapter 9, verse 43 reports that after this, the people were amazed and they all marveled at Jesus and the power of God. But not everyone was so awestruck. As the story ends, there's one group that they're, they're just still confused. They're still bewildered by something because it's just not right. That group is the disciples. And they're still very concerned about one thing. You know, they're happy for the boy. Yeah, that's, that's great. But there's one more problem. Verse 28. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. This is another very revealing verse. And that's how the the story ends. Why did the disciples fail originally? Because they did not pray. They didn't pray. So does that mean, wait, if if you just say a few magic words to God, you can you can do anything, you can you have total power? Well no. I want to be careful again because this is another verse that is widely misused by many people. Jesus never endorses some incantation or ritual or ceremony. Say a few magic words and make God do whatever you want. Obviously not the picture here. In fact, when Jesus cast the demon out himself, did he pray? No, he didn't. He just just said it. So what's he talking about? Can't come out by anything but prayer. What does he mean? Well, what is prayer other than an expression of one's faith and dependence upon God? That's what prayer is. It's an expression of your faith and dependence upon God. By praying, you are calling upon God for his help. And you are expressing trust that he can deliver. He has to deliver because you can't. So that's what prayer is. You are explicitly depending on his power and not your own. And that's what the disciples failed to do. It's not that they just forgot to say a few magic words. It's not the issue. The issue is they were trusting in themselves, not the Lord. And they failed to express their trust in the Lord by praying. 
They had received from Jesus this delegated authority over demons. They could have done this. They should have done this. But they started to act as if this power was theirs. Like, I can do this. I've got the power. It's my power. But it wasn't. They started to rely on their own strength, their own technique, instead of God's power. Each of these nine disciples believed they could have cast this demon out on their own strength. But they're so busy focusing on themselves and their technique and arguing with others that they forgot to pray. Pride in their power and position and prestige blinded them from remembering that they can't do anything apart from God and his strength. They have no power or authority apart from the Lord. So instead, they should have prayed. And not just saying some magic words, but humbly expressing their continual need for his power working through them. Lord, you have to give us this power. You've called us to do this, but we can't, but empower us and we can. The power and the ability to do anything before God is not our own. It comes from him. God enables us by his power to do all the things that he calls us to do. And actually here is where we find this broader lesson that applies to all of us and to everything that the Lord calls us to do. And the bottom line for the disciples and for us is this, faith and prayer are a powerful combination. Faith and prayer are a powerful combination. It's not rocket science. It's not something you haven't heard before. But it is such an essential reminder for us all. What does God require of you? Does he require you to be perfect? Well, in a sense, yeah, but that's not possible. He just requires one thing. Faith. That, that encapsulates a lot, but let's just call it that. He requires faith. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you've been saved through faith. Romans 3.28, A man is justified, made right with God by faith. That's it. You, you just have to have faith. God does not expect perfect righteousness from you because that's not possible. I mean, in a sense, he does. That's the requirement. But you fall way so far short, not even in the option category. Instead, though, God is prepared to grant you perfect righteousness and forgiveness. Just for free. Here you go. I'll give it to you. It's what you need, and I'll give it to you as a gift. But how do you access the gift? It comes on the wings of Faith. You, you get the gift through faith. What is faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. More specifically, faith is trusting in Jesus. He's the unseen Lord and depending on him to save you. It's not just an intellectual belief, as I hope you know. It's, it's a life-changing commitment where you deny self, pick up cross, you follow him with your life. It's not enough to believe that if you're on a plane that's going down, that that parachute sitting over there will save you. That's not good enough. You've got to go put it on, wear it, and use it. Otherwise, you won't be saved. And likewise, just some belief that Jesus will help you is not enough. You must put him on. You are actively depending on him and trusting him daily to save you. You put on the Lord Jesus Christ and you follow him. That's what's required. However, even in this, we're still weak. Even in this sense of basic faith, 
And we're, we're still imperfect, aren't we? Dale Moody identified three types of faith. I think that's accurate. Some people have a struggling faith. It's like they're in deep water and they're just trying to stay afloat. They're just trying to keep their head above water. Some people have a clinging faith. They've made it to the side of the boat. They're still just trying to hang on. Other people have a resting faith. They're in the boat. They're at peace. They're able to help others get inside. In reality, though, we all experience all three types of faith at different points in our life. Maybe you're, you're, going, you're doing strongly. You're, things are going well for you. You have a strong faith. But then a storm hits, and what do you know? You might be tossed back into the water, and you're just trying to stay afloat. It's possible. And some might think, well, you know, you're only really saved if you're in the boat. You're resting peacefully in the boat. Only then can you be saved. You have to have a perfect and complete faith. But that's not true. And the Father in our story proves it. Jesus accepted him with his little imperfect faith. There's no such thing as a perfect and complete faith for us on this side of eternity. In reality, our faith, it's more like a dimmer switch for these light bulbs. It can be low intensity, it can be high intensity, it can go up and down. What matters, though, there is a line. The light is either on or off. That's true. Is some light shining? Then you have faith. But we have our ups and downs. We have our strengths and weaknesses. Our faith is imperfect. Of course, God calls us to a higher faith, to a perfect faith, but One of the wonderful lessons from this passage learned from Jesus is that we are assured that God is understanding and compassionate and gracious with our imperfect faith. He knows that even our faith is weak, but he can overcome our weaknesses. At the end of the day, our imperfect faith is still made acceptable because we have a perfect Savior. Your little faith in a big Savior can be enough. In fact, that's what Jesus said to the disciples over in Matthew. As the story ends, Matthew gives us one more verse in his parallel where Jesus, he's talking to the disciples in the house. And he says in Matthew 17, verse 20, at the end of all this, he says, Truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will be able to say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. It's another wonderful verse. Again, though, it's not, it's not a lesson on changing Earth's topography. It's not what it's about. It's a lesson on faith. And what's the point? Jesus is telling them that, look, even if your faith is as big as a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds, even if your faith is that little, it's, it's enough for you to do impossible things. It's enough for God to save you. An imperfect faith is still made acceptable by having a perfect Savior. So this morning, if you find yourself in the shoes of the Father, don't be ashamed. Don't fret that your faith is not perfect. It's only right for you to recognize and confess, Lord, I I do believe. I am committed. I will follow. But help my unbelief. You're acknowledging you're not good enough on your own. You're not sufficient. You're not. Christ is. You acknowledge that. You recognize that. You're moving in the direction of greater dependence on him. That's exactly what he wants. That's what he wants. 
Jesus heard the Father, he will hear everyone like him. Or we could say this, Luke 17, verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. One time when the disciples got it right, they said, Lord, increase our faith. And God wants to hear that. And finally, this is where prayer comes in. This is where prayer comes in. Prayer is both an expression of your faith and a means of obtaining more faith. The disciples, they did believe, but they got so caught up in, in the event, in the world, the pressures of life, they became self-reliant, they were ignoring God, their prayer life wasn't where it should be. Sound familiar? And so they experienced a void of power in their life. They were powerless to do things that God called them to do. Does that sound familiar? Has that ever happened to you? You find yourself powerless to do things that God calls you to do? You're trying to overcome this sin, but it keeps getting the best of you. You try and evangelize this family member, but you chicken out every time. Maybe you're trying to know God more through reading the Bible, praying. You want to be more devout, but you can never focus. Maybe the problem is that you're trying to do all these things in your own strength, in your own power, instead of trusting and relying on the Lord to empower you. You and me... We're not sufficient. None of us can do all the things that God calls us to do. We can't on our own strength. But by God's power, you can. And you tap into that power with faith and prayer. Like God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. You're not sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you. And God's power is perfected in our weakness. We're weak and insufficient. That's where his power shines, and he gets the glory from that. Therefore, all we have to do is exercise faith and pray, and he will enable us. God is not like Aladdin's lamp. You rub occasionally, you get your three wishes, you get what you want out of him. He seeks a living and active relationship with you. You're depending on him daily. You're, you're trusting him all the time, and you're praying all the time. He enables you to work. And when all is said and done, the lesson is to turn to Jesus more through faith and prayer. Like Paul said in Second Corinthians, don't be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's what you need. You need more dependence on Him. You don't need the latest Christian gimmick, the latest 12, step to 12 steps of spiritual growth. You just need more humble dependence upon Him through faith and prayer. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus, he's trying to prepare the 12 disciples for the day when he's gone. He's not always going to be there to bail them out and to do this stuff for them. He's going to leave. And when he's gone, how are they going to do all the things that he's calling them to do? How are they going to do it? Not by self-reliance. Not by relying on their experience or their technique or their own strength, they're going to do it all by relying on him through faith and prayer. And this lesson shines from this text. The Lord is gone for us. He's not here to solve our problems. He's not right here to, to, to heal you or deliver you. He's, he's in heaven. He's ascended. But we know he's still with us. He's still with us. He knows us. He knows our frame. He knows we are dust. He knows we are helpless desperate sinners. He's compassionate on us. And so if you go to him, 
humble, needy, and asking for strength to keep following, He will hear. Even if you're just asking for enough faith to make through the day and to stay afloat, He will never turn away the prayer, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let me finish and read Hebrews 4, 14-16 for you. A fitting closure. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So what we need to be doing always through prayer and faith, drawing near to the throne of grace with confidence. And it's there we will find help in a time of need. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for knowing us and being compassionate with us. How right you would be to simply cast us out of your presence for good and to judge us, but your compassion, your mercy, your love for us overcame and and you even sent your Son to die for us. Lord, we are not perfect. We sin and fall short. Even our faith is weak and sometimes riddled with doubt. Yet even in this, you overcome with a greater son. Your, your perfect Savior is the answer to even our imperfect faith. We thank you for this. It's our cry, all of us here, I pray and I trust that we do believe, but help our unbelief. Anyone who's struggling, even with a greater level of doubt or assurance, I pray you speak to them and comfort them and lift them up and empower them through your word, through prayer, to know you and to live for you. Increase our faith, Lord. We want to be those who are living radically for you, not on the sidelines like the crowds, but following truly the Lord, denying self, taking up the cross, living for his will. And we pray that that's what happens, Lord, that your will be done in our lives. We don't want to live for us anymore, but for you. And give us the strength we need each day to do all that you call us to do. It's for your glory. And as your power is perfected in our weakness, that's what you get. You receive the glory. So we lift you up. And and exalt you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.